we've been talking about what it is to grow spiritually. And, and one of the first components uh, that we talk about is a genuine encounter with God in the form of Jesus Christ, which I think is the foundation of everything. Blaise Pascal is a devout Catholic in the year 1654. He's had something like a first conversion when he joined what was known as the Jansenist movement. It was a movement that stressed simplicity and purity. They were worried about kind of a moral permissiveness, but they were also worried about a dead orthodoxy. And so the Catholic Church had a movement and uh, Pascal was in that movement. So he was already a follower within the church. But something happened in 1654 that we would not have known about if a servant some 10 years after Pascal died, he only lived till he was 39, sick the last five to seven years of his life. He was knowledgeable and awarded in mathematics physics, theology, and literature. This is one bright dude. And in 1654, he had another awakening. He wrote it on a piece of paper, sewed it inside the liner of his jacket. Then 10 years after he died, a servant found it. It reads... In the year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, from about half past 10 in the evening until half past midnight. Fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. Certitude, certitude, feeling joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, forgetfulness of the world and everything except God. Righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. Let me not be separated from him. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, I have separated myself from him. I have fled from him, denied him, crucified him. Let me never be separated from him. Renunciation, total and sweet, total submission to Jesus Christ and to my director. Eternally enjoy for a, day, for a day's training on earth. Amen. That's powerful. The risk of sounding revivalist. This is something I want for some form of it, some intensity of it that I want in my own life. And I want in every person's life in our church. 
because I think that awakening becomes the foundation for everything that happens next. One of the things you might do someday is read through the Gospels and notice the number of encounters Jesus has with different characters. And if you consider that these stories are in the Bible, not only that you might know who Jesus is, but that you might know what to expect from him in a real encounter. If you put yourself in the position of the person coming to him, you might find yourself in a real encounter. Here's a few. Nicodemus is a scholar. He forgot more at noon than most other Jews ever knew. And yet there's something in him that hungers for more. He's heard Jesus say some things. He can't put them together. He's heard about born again. He knows a little about that. That was somewhere in the tradition, but he's never heard him talk about it like this. He comes to see Jesus at night and Jesus starts talking about that which is flesh gives birth to flesh and that which is spirit giving birth to spirit. And the spirit's like the wind that moves and Nicodemus, he's brilliant. And he says, how can these things be? And Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher. And you don't know these things. I remember where I was as a preacher on a back porch. When that question rose up and hit me, Head on. You are Israel's preacher. And you don't know these things. There's a woman with an issue of blood. She's not even supposed to be in public. She is ritually unclean, forbidden to go near the public. But she tells herself she will break protocol if she can somehow get hold of the end of his garment. Jesus walks by and she reaches out and touches his garment, and immediately she is cured. Jesus says, wait a minute, somebody touched me. The disciples say, everybody's touched you. He said, no, 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 I felt something leave me and go toward one per That's how some of you feel when you come to worship, isn't it? You feel a little bit like, you know, I know Jesus is closer to everybody else, but not maybe that close to me. There's a lot of people in between him and me. Maybe if I could just be close, maybe something will happen. And what you want, and sometimes what happens to you, is you do get hold of him. And everything stops for you. He turns around, sees you, and suddenly you are as good as everyone in the crowd. There is Bartimaeus who's blind and hears Jesus is walking by and you stand up and you start shouting 
hoping he'll stop and do something. The people around you, disciples, the members are telling you, sit down, shut up, but you won't do it. You keep saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He stops and asks the same question to you that he asked to the disciples only moments ago. What do you want me to do for you? They said, let us sit on your right and left. You say, I just want to see. And he touches you. And you can see. You're a paralyzed man. Your conditions have forbidden you to get to him. But you have four friends who know how. They get around your little cot. They pick you up, they climb up top the roof, start peeling somebody's roof back. That made for a fun afternoon. And they lower you, and these are the words, in front of Jesus. There's people all around him, and they lower you right in front of Jesus so he can't miss you. And he forgives you. Your sins are forgiven. Handful of times in my life, I've been in a hospital with someone who was in that situation who said, what I need, I cannot have because I can't even approach God right now. Part of me's mad at him that I'm stuck here. He won't cure this. And part of me just feels like God's mad at me, like he's a long ways away. I don't know how to pray. A handful of times in my life, I felt compelled to do it. I said, give me four names that you know how to get hold of God. And if they can't do it, I provide them. But sometimes they can. I write the names down, come back and call them on the phone and say, you have a brother that's in the hospital and beyond his sickness, he feels that God's left him and he doesn't know how to get hold of him. I need you to get hold of a cot drop him right in front of Jesus so he can't miss him. Because if he sees it, everything will change. Everything changes when you meet him. Any of you that have been in a room with God present in palpable ways knows I am not overstating this. What happens in an encounter? There's a story in Genesis chapter 28, where a fellow by the name of Jacob has an encounter. Now get this. 
Jacob is named after an incident that happened at his birth. He was born grabbing the heel of his brother Esau, and so they named him Jacob, heel grabber, which literally means deceit. And he spent the next few years living down to it. When the time was right, he dressed up like his brother Esau, went in in front of his dad, Isaac, who was now nearly blind, pretended to be the elder brother, and stole the inheritance. His brother was livid, wanted to kill him. Jacob's mother said, you better run. So he does. And in the middle of that flight, he's tired. He lays down for the night. He finds... <laughs> love this. He finds a rock, a stone, and uses it as a pillow. <laughs> I'm like, I've slept on a few of those. And now with his head propped up, he falls asleep and goes into a dream. And what he sees will change him forever. He sees a ladder that begins on earth and stretches all the way up into the heavens. Have you heard this story? I'll hurry. And he sees angels that are on earth ascending into heaven. And he sees angels, messengers of God that are in heaven coming back to earth. Let's park there for a minute. What he sees is that heaven and earth are not as far apart as he thought. There's traffic between them. What is happening in heaven is being exported to the earth. And what is said and done on earth is being carried up into the heavens. Heaven is interested in earth. Earth can count on heaven. It blows his mind. He's not even looking for this. He's preoccupied, self-reliant, ambivalent about the whole thing. And his world is just shaken with this dream. Then he's, he sees at the top of the ladder one who is like Yahweh himself. And he's talking. And he's making promises. This is absurd. People of power never make promises. Because the minute you make them, you're bound to them. Why would you promise a mortal anything? But that's what he's doing. He's promising. He says, I'm the God of your ancestors. Remember them? I'm him. And I will give you the land I promised to them. I'll bless you. You'll have lots of descendants. And through you, through you, I will bless the world. So part of this dream affects you, but it isn't about you. It's about who you will be to the world. And there's one more thing, says the Lord. 
I'm not going to leave you alone. Not ever. Not until I do every last word of what I just promised. Jacob awakes and everything has changed. He says, surely Yahweh is in this place. Not was, is in this place. And I never knew it. Now that he is fully awake, Jacob can see things as they really are. That was the purpose of the dream. Even though he can no longer see the ladder or the angels, even though the voice is not as pronounced as it was a few moments ago, he knows from this moment on Heaven and earth are not as removed as he thought. There is traffic all the time. The only thing the dream did was show him what was true all the time. He had to dream to be awake. Now, no matter where he goes... He'll hear that voice. Even here, he's here. Even if I don't know it, even if it feels like he's not, he's here, as I remember. That's the power of an encounter with an almighty God. It comes to us in personal ways. We hear our name. It touches parts of us that no one else can speak into. And something inside us jumps toward it. It pulls us into a paradox. Part of us is terrified, and yet we don't want to leave. We feel unclean and purified at the same time. Part of us is disrupted, disoriented, and part of us is confident and secure in a new way. You can never unravel that. Think it would be wrong to try. And then we hear a voice. And the voice says things that were always true. The same promises he made to the ancestors. We'll hear the same things. Only now they are spoken to us. And so they're personal. And they're timely. I don't know what exactly is going on in all of your lives. Some of you I do. But I don't know more of you than those I do. And it might feel right now like an encounter with the divine 
It's pretty tertiary to, to what you're really after. But in a strange way, without addressing the specifics in your life, an encounter with God is always the thing you need. It settles and reorients you like nothing else. It makes almost every other answer seem more shallow. It isn't. It will seem that way. How are you doing? Are you there? Because it's quiet. This story with Nathaniel in John chapter 1. He's reenacting the story with Jacob and he, he doesn't even, I don't think he even knows it. Not until the end. All we know from the story is Jesus decides to go to Galilee and there he found, it's a big word in the first couple verses, he found Philip. And Philip found Nathanael. Jesus found Philip and said, follow me. And then Philip found Nathanael and said, we have found the person that Moses and the prophets have talked about. This Jesus, the son of a carpenter, lives in Nazareth. Nathanael is not impressed. He says, Anything good come from Nazareth? Sitting under a fig tree, totally preoccupied, very ambivalent, not particularly interested in any kind of encounter at the moment. He has no idea what he's walking into. Philip just says, come and see. I love this. And here's why. Because I think that Nathaniel uh, comes toward Jesus in almost the same state of mind that many of us come into worship Sunday after Sunday. We are preoccupied. There's a lot going on. We are a bit ambivalent. We're not particularly seeking after God aggressively. Take it if it comes, but not really going hard after it. Maybe a bit bored, but certainly underwhelmed by all of the hype that Philip's going on and on about. But he comes. He still comes. Despite the reservations, he comes. Jesus sees him far away off. And Jesus is profuse. He goes, ah, now here comes a true Israelite. One who struggles with God. In him is no deceit. In the first sentence out of his mouth, he uses both names assigned to Jacob. Deceit and one who struggles with God, Israel. 
the first sign that something is up. Nathaniel says, where do you know me from? That's literal. Have we met? Where do you know this? Jesus said, oh, I saw you sitting under the fig tree, watch it, before Philip even found you. I saw you before you saw me. This is no accident. And when he says it, Nathaniel's overwhelmed. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are king of Israel. Jesus says, really? Are you... Just because I said I saw you sitting under the tree? He's profuse in his praise. Then Jesus says, and now it's clear. He says, you stay with me and you will see heaven opened. And you'll see messengers of God ascending and descending. I'm the son of man. And I think that if Nathaniel and Philip knew the teachings of Moses and the prophet, they surely would have known the image that he just borrowed from Jacob. And I think that's where it hit him. Blindside. This is no ordinary person. This man is a thin space. Wherever he is, heaven and earth are not far apart. The heavens have broken into the earth. Everything this man says from this day on, I'm gonna take it like the word of him standing at the top of the ladder. It is gospel. When you have an encounter like Jacob or Nathaniel, same thing almost always happens. He'll find you before you're looking for him. You'll feel seen, heard, known, and it will rattle you. He knows a lot about you. And yet you will feel safe. He will use your name. He may change it. You will hear a promise. God will say something that has always been true, only now he'll say it to you. And when you hear it, your soul will come alive. And you'll come away from that encounter knowing that things are not as they seem. The heavens right next door. The only thing you must have 
hunger. We can't. We can't control that. I, the reason, one of the reasons that we worship is, is to help one another find language for this encounter. We're trying to touch parts of you that maybe have just gone dormant in the last week. We're looking for structure, for movement that will help put us in front of God. He knows where to find us. And, and then we try, we try to structure and put words to that, but we cannot make it happen. I didn't want to talk about it because I, I feel like I can't make it happen. I said to the Lord, all I can do is like go out there and, and just sort of tease people but I don't feel like I can really answer the tension that I'm going to create. And I just got the sense of, no, no, you have to do what only you can do. And then I will do what only I can do. And so I went to the worship arts team and I said, uh, I'm asking for a miracle. Um, um, I'm asking for you to help structure a very, very brief worship service. Can you take 60 minutes worth of worship and compress it in five minutes? And they never batted an eye while I was in the room anyway. And they got together, they put different liturgies with confessions and scripture, prayers and song. And in the next five minutes, that's what we're going to do. but we can't make you hungry. My prayer, well, let's pray it. Father, in the next few minutes, I pray that you would fill these words. If people came tired, if they came ashamed, if they came bored, if they came disinterested, how did she say it? I do not love you. I do not even want to love you, but I want to want to love you. Give them that, I pray. Start there, oh God, and help us at least want to want to love you. And in these words, in the next few moments, I pray that you'd inhabit those words and they will become holy. In Jesus' name.